Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshenu b'mitzvotav v'sivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. I've been torn between two different titles for this message. One is The Temptation of Balaam or Balaam, and the other one is Flipping Curses. And actually, we'll, we'll end up talking about both of those as we look at uh, a number of scriptures today. And we're also going to be looking at the process of temptation how it works in our, our lives, how it worked in the life of Balaam, and how we can have victory over temptation. The Apostle James was not actually named James. What was his actual name? Yaakov. And so a better English rendering of his name would be Jacob. He has very useful Messianic Jewish insights into the spiritual and the emotional and the psychological processes that we all deal with. And his wisdom is built upon both his Jewishness and his relationship with Messiah. And these two aspects of his faith, Messianic and Jewish, were working together and we can learn so much from him. Those two sides of Yaakov were not in conflict with each other. They were two sides that were genuine and made him stronger. And I think that what he has to say can be very useful for us as a framework for looking at the story of Balaam, or Balaam, which do you prefer? Balaam, Balaam. You know, we live in the South, so you have to know how to speak Southern. I, I grew up in the South, so I'm comfortable with Balaam. And you can make it even stronger if you want to. <laughs> or Balaam, I'll go back and forth just because I like both, both ways. So as we're reading about Balaam in the Torah this week, we have a double portion, by the way, Chukat and Balak. And Balak is a different character than Balaam. We'll get to that. Don't be confused. Some of these names all run together. But Balaam is complex. And some people have a very high regard for him, and they think he was a good prophet. And others consider him a bad guy, even a false prophet. He's complex. There's good in him, and there's bad in him. And that can be difficult. It can be difficult for us when we want to see people either as all good or all bad. So we're going to start with James chapter 1, and we're going to use the David Levine translation. You know what that means? It'll be a bit eclectic. 
Yaakov, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Just starting right there, most English translations would not have rendered it the way I just did. It, they would say something like, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not exactly how Yaakov was writing. Because he was writing to Messianic Jews, Jews who had given their life to Messiah. And that's what the second part of the verse says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, I want to comment on that second part because depending on which translation you use or your understanding of the Greek that we have to look at, you may be reading this one way or another. The New Living Translation, which is sort of a paraphrase, has it this way, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. That's an interesting translation. It's sort of an obscure translation, the Aramaic Bible in plain English says this, Yaakov, the servant of God and of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, to the 12 tribes which are scattered among the nations, peace. Now the Good News Bible obscures all of these details and strips away all the Jewishness of what Yaakov has written. And this is how they render it. Greetings to all God's people scattered over the whole world. The New Heart English Bible says to the 12 tribes which are in the diaspora or the diaspora, greetings. And so it introduces a word in English, diaspora, that's familiar to many Jewish people, and it's actually a, um, a word that is consistent with what the Greek says, because the Greek uses that exact word. I'm not a Greek speaker, but I can read a little bit, and it does say in the diaspora, in the diaspora. So what is the diaspora? It's, it's something very straightforward. In, in New Testament times, it was the Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who were dispersed. They were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And so diaspora means to be dispersed. And diaspora also, as uh, some of the Bible references identify very clearly, properly refers to Israelites, exiled to foreign lands, Jews residing outside of Palestine. So that goes back to earlier times, even to the earlier exiles. But that idea of this being written to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, that's consistent with what Yaakov is trying to communicate. He is writing to Jewish believers in particular. He's writing to Jewish believers who aren't living in the land of Israel. They're living outside of the land. And he's trying to help them grasp some things about their life of faith with Messiah as Jews. Now, here's the thing. 
He's writing to Jewish believers, and yet this is in the New Testament writings for all believers. It's not only for Jewish people, it's for everyone who puts their trust in Messiah. There is something here that is directed to the Jews, but it's not exclusively for the Jews. And that, I think, is a reflection of good Messianic Jewish understanding and theology and communication. We have a message that can be strong because it is a message that is authentically Jewish and authentically Messianic. And we can walk in both of those simultaneously. They're not at odds with each other. And that message is good news for the Jewish people and also for every nation, everywhere. Are you okay with what I just said so far? I may be covering some complicated things or some issues that some people haven't thought about. And I can tell you, as we're reading through these passages today, it may become clear to you that you should have read the assignments, the assigned readings before we started. But if you didn't, afterwards you can catch up. But if, you, if you've ever gone to any classes and you didn't read the, the reading assignments, and you're accustomed to faking it, um, you, you don't have to fake it. But you may find that certain details aren't clear to you because you're not familiar with the text. I'll try to make it um, open to people who have read and to people who are less familiar with the text. But in any case, I want to now go to chapter 1, verse 12 of, of James or Yaakov. And here we can read about his insights into the spiritual, emotional, and psychological processes that are at work in temptation, because all three are at work. And in some cases, you could add physical processes at work. I can prove that. I'll demonstrate it. Who likes chocolate? Now that I've mentioned that, who would like some chocolate? Hey, who likes donuts? All right. Okay. We can keep going, right? Now, for some of you, it will be difficult to hear the rest of the message because you're going to be thinking about chocolate and donuts because your body is re responding to just the thought of it. So sometimes our bodies are engaged in the whole process. Now, some people will say, Rabbi David, that was really stupid. You should not have spoken about chocolate and donuts when you're trying to teach people about the Scriptures. Except I'm trying to make a point that there is spiritual process, there is emotional process, there is psychological process, but there's also physical process at work regarding temptation. Okay, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Boy, if you stop there, you'd say, why? Because 
Yaakov is saying the one who endures temptation, who goes through it and finds victory anyway. For when he's been approved, and that word approved is a complicated word. It, it means when he's been found victorious or when he's been tested and stood strong. And you might think, oh, I don't like this idea of being tested, but in fact, in life, there are many tests. And some of the tests simply reveal what we are so that we can address um, our actual condition. They help us see what we are like. For when he's been approved, after having been tested, you could say, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, so this is being written to Messianic Jewish people all over the diaspora. And Yaakov is saying, when you're tempted and you've had victory, there's something good that you can expect. And he says, this crown of life, the Lord has promised to whom? Those who love him. And this is consistent with what Yeshua said is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God. And you might say, how can you command somebody to love? Well, you can it turns out. If you receive it, you can choose to love someone. The Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14, now I want to be clear about this. Yaakov in verses 14 and 15 is describing the general process of temptation that I think each of us can recognize can be at work, and this can help us understand how it can work. Now, Yeshua was tempted, but not exactly in the same way, and you can think about that as we go. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed, and then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So Yaakov is teaching how the process of temptation can typically work, and there are two sides to it. One side is internal, and the other side is external. Each of us is tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires. That's the internal side. We want something. We have desires. We want it, the desires in our heart. In fact, maybe we've nurtured it. Maybe we've accepted it. Uh, it's our desire. We want it. Let me get back to donuts for a minute. How many of you are familiar with the wonderful donut brand, Krispy Kreme? And <laughs> how many of you are familiar with their sign on the streets in front of their stores? And how many know that that sign turns red when they've got hot donuts? 
and it's meant to trigger something. That everybody who loves hot donuts, when they're driving by, would know now's the time. See, you've got two things at work. You've got the internal desire, and then you've got the external enticement that's coming, that's connected to opportunity. Something happens and we're enticed and we have opportunity. Sometimes we'll drive by Krispy Kreme and see that the red light's not on and we'll go, whew. <laughs> the two aspects, Yaakov is saying, come together, desire and opportunity. When we give in to the desire and we take the opportunity, that's when we're drawn away. Do you get that? If there's no opportunity and you have the desire, you're not going to be drawn away because there's no opportunity. It doesn't mean you're strong. It simply means you don't have the opportunity. Now, if you have no desire, then you're not enticed. It's not something that really means an opportunity for you to get what you desire. Have you noticed that there's not like this big store selling steamed broccoli with a sign on the street, you know, that's flashing green? It's steamed and fresh right now. I mean, I like broccoli. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy broccoli. I buy broccoli. I cook broccoli. I eat broccoli willingly. I am not forced to. I choose broccoli. I like Brussels sprouts as well. I like vegetables. But it's rare that vegetables get a grip on us, even if we like them. We're drawn away because we have this desire for something and then there's an opportunity and being drawn away means we give in to the opportunity. But it also means we give in to the desire. And that's why verse 15 is very useful for us to understand. When desire has conceived, this word conceive, you know, if you think of it, um, in, in human terms, you've got male and female coming together, joining together. So desire conceives how? When it comes together with opportunity. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now this, of course, is talking about desires for what are not good for us. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So desire conceives, it joins with opportunity, it gives birth to what? To sin. And when it's full grown, it brings forth death. So it grows up, 
And later on, there's death, and that death may be spiritual death, it may be relationship death, it may be death of our conscience, it may be physical death. So this is the process that Yaakov James is describing, and I want to use that as a framework to help us dig into the story of Balaam, who's the key figure in the second part of our Torah readings this week. He's a complex person, as I said, because he's got good and bad parts to him. And by the way, I, I did a study with uh, a number of groups over the years that was very interesting. I presented to half of each class the parts of the scriptures that speak of the good things that Balaam said or did and reflect that good side. And then to the other half, I presented to them the scriptures that speak of the bad things that he said and did. The first time I did it, I, I wasn't as careful as I am now. And I didn't tell either side what I was doing. And so they felt kind of tricked. And... Uh, it was a really interesting class because it was made up of Christian leaders and they weren't accustomed to wrestling with the good and the bad. And so they tended to be more black and white. But it created a, a big argument between the two sides because one side started saying, he's good, and the other side was saying, no, he's evil. And they were arguing with each other. I didn't quite expect that. And so I, I revised my lesson plan to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> but if you ever want to participate in that, um, I've got like all the stuff you would need in order to go through the, the lessons yourself to look at the good and the bad. But we won't go through all of that today. Now, we're going to look at Joshua 24, verse 9, for a moment here, because it gives a very concise summary. And it says, then Balak, he's one person, he's the king of Moab, set out to fight against Israel, and Balak sent for Balaam to curse Israel. So, you've got two different people. Balak is king. And Balaam is known to be some kind of spiritual prophet who has the power to curse. But he's also known to be a prophet for hire. You can pay him money and get him to do things. So we could say that Balaam was hired to curse Israel. Verse 10 then gives us some additional information. It's from the perspective of the Lord. And so uh, let me give you a translation that reflects that. But I, the Lord, would not listen to Balaam when he tried to curse you. So Balaam blessed you again and again, and I, the Lord, delivered you from his hand. You see, every time Balaam tried to curse, what came out were blessings. It was frustrating for Balaam, 
It was more frustrating for Balak, the king of Moab, who was paying good money to get a curse. And the Lord said, I didn't listen to Balaam's efforts to curse Israel. Instead, Balaam kept blessing Israel, and that's how the Lord delivered Israel from Balaam. But if you stick with the story, and you have to read the story of Balaam over many weeks to get all the details, you'll see that even though Balaam did bless Israel, he kept trying to curse Israel. And he put his strongest effort into that until he found a way. So let's try to apply what we learned from James. Balaam had desire and he had opportunity. What was his desire? To curse Israel. And what was the opportunity? He was hired to curse Israel. He tried to. You could say Balaam was hired to curse Israel and he wanted to curse Israel, so he tried to. Or you could say he wanted to curse Israel and then he was hired to. Both would be true. But he had that internal desire. And it's revealed at the very beginning of the passage in Torah where Balaam is is being approached by representatives who want him to come to uh, Balak and and to the other kings who are gathering together to, to curse Israel. And Balaam asked the Lord if he should go. And it's interesting how Balaam understood the Lord's response. The Hebrew puts it like this, from Balaam's perspective, but the Lord refused to give me permission to go. And I looked very carefully at it because, uh, like you, Brian, I was paying attention to what Robertson and Sandy were saying about that permission side, and it caught my attention that in the Hebrew, it, it's especially strong. It could have said, and the Lord refused my request, or the Lord did not give me permission. But it's doubled, in a sense, with two different words that together make it explicitly clear that the, re- the Lord refused to give permission. And when the Lord refused to give permission, you know what Balaam did? He kept asking because he wanted two things. He wanted to curse Israel, and he wanted the money. When Balaam was trying to curse Israel, these involuntary words of blessing came out of him. His curse words were turned into blessings. It happened again and again. Balaam still had a desire to curse Israel. He still had a desire to earn money cursing Israel, so he kept at it. And that's important to keep in mind. He speaks blessings, but not because he wants to. What is in his heart is to curse. And that's why Balaam keeps trying to curse. 
Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, gives us some more insight. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, and the Lord overturned or flipped the curse or turned it upside down into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. So the Lord your God loves you. That was God's motivation, his love for his people Israel. He overturned Balaam's curses. In Hebrew, it says that God turned the curses upside down into blessings. And it uses the word yahafoch, which is derived from the same root as hafuch, which means upside down and is one of my favorite Hebrew words. Uh, many of you know that. How many of you knew already that hafuch is one of my favorite words? Kadima, hafuch, mishpocha, you know, there are a number of them, but hafuch is especially uh, one of Sandy and my favorites. We learned it long ago when we were at a cafe in Jerusalem in the German colony. And uh, I even know the street. We were trying to order a cappuccino, and this was decades ago. And our server was not familiar with the term cappuccino. And it turned out she only knew it by the Hebrew term, which was cafe hafuch, which means upside down coffee. And I think that's because they would pour the milk into the cup and then put the coffee on it, and that's upside down. Café hafuch. So we love that word. And hafuch and the various forms like hafuch and vayafuch are used in the scriptures often to describe how God works on behalf of those he loves. He flips things. Something meant for evil is overturned. A curse is overturned. It's flipped into a blessing. The New Testament tells us that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He overturns things on behalf of those who love him. Things that are evil and meant for evil, God gets his hands on, he overturns them, and sometimes good comes out of them. It's not that the thing is done and it becomes good. It's that good comes anyway. It happened in the life of Joseph and his brothers. And that's what he did for Israel when Balaam was trying to curse Israel. He flipped the curses. And that's why one of my titles was, you could even put it this way, those flipping curses. <laughs> he overturned them. Blessings came out of Balaam's mouth, and that's what God did for Israel. But what was going on inside of the heart of Balaam? That's what Yaakov helps us see. Balaam had his own desires. He had his own motivations. He had opportunity. He was enticed. What was actually in his heart, and what did he desire? Peter tells us. Peter also, according to Paul, is a Jewish apostle a Messianic Jewish apostle. Paul said, Paul a Jew, and also a Messianic. You say Paul was a Messianic Jew, but his apostleship was to Gentile believers. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, Balaam loved the wages of wickedness. He loved the money. In particular, he loved making money by prophesying 
and he even loved using spiritual gifts for evil purposes. He loved being hired to prophesy and to curse. And how do you know this? Because he kept going after it. He had so many opportunities to turn away. Why didn't he? He was tempted by this evil desire that he had. And then he had opportunity. He didn't love Israel. He didn't love the Jewish people. He didn't love what God loves. He kept trying to curse Israel. And he persevered until he found a way to do harm to the children of Israel. He made his money. He earned it. It was profitable for him for a while. But eventually, if you stick with the story throughout the coming weeks, you'll see it cost him his life. And he became a byword among the Jewish people, like Cain, like Karach. He became the one who left the straight path and followed his own way. Now that connects to Yeshua's teaching about the path of life and the path of destruction, and it interestingly connects to false prophets. So Matthew 7, verse 13 We've read this several times recently, but we'll go just a little bit in a new direction. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Verse 14, but small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. Then verse 15, and this is interesting, it just switches right over to this. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. It's interesting that Yeshua uses this language to talk about false prophets because he, he's underlining the contradiction between the outward and the inward, and he's focusing on what they really are and the condition of their hearts. He warns about false prophets. So here's the warning. Beware of false prophets. It's like Yeshua's posting a warning sign. Careful. Danger. Warning. You've seen such signs, not about false prophets, but on our beaches, there are warnings posted when it's dangerous to go into the water. And sadly, some people ignore the warnings, and sadly, some of those people drown. Maybe they thought it was safe when it wasn't. Yeshua gives us a warning about false prophets, and here's the warning. On the surface, they seem to be one thing, but in fact, they are another thing. They come in sheep's clothing. Some of the scholars who have tried to analyze that statement are, they have two different ideas. One is that um, this is like a reference to the common fable we are all familiar with, the wolf with a sheepskin on it, you know, that pretends to be a wolf. But that's one, that's one explanation. There's another explanation. It turns out that in Hebrew, this was a, an idiom, it was an old figure of speech that meant dressed with a long talit. It's interesting, isn't it? 
either way, I think it works. Both meanings work. They look like sheep, but in fact, they are wolves. So there's the contradiction between the outward and the inward. The condition of their hearts is one thing. What they want to be seen as is another thing. And what's revealed is that they are wolves, but they want other people to think of them as a sheep. So what are they really? They're wolves. And what do wolves want to do? Eat the sheep. So false prophets, and this is complicated. They may be part good and part bad. What makes them false is what they are actually inwardly. And Yeshua's warning is very simple, but it helps us recognize what's important. It's not the outer form. It's the inward condition. And that's what James is teaching about. That's what Yaakov is saying. It's the inner condition of desire that's at work. And this is useful to all of us, not just to analyze false prophets or Balaam or ancient history and theology, but to be able to look at ourselves and to learn and to take something from, from those important history lessons and lessons from our people and apply it to ourselves. Micah, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8 are part of the Haftorah. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, remember him, what he plotted and planned and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. So Micah is saying, remember, remember this. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember this. So take, take notice of it, become familiar with it, be able to think about it from memory. You're that familiar. And then verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? <clears throat> verse 7. Does the Lord take pleasure in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Interestingly, Balaam tried to make sacrifices as well. Shall I give him my firstborn for my wrongdoings, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's, these are questions, and you could put it this way. Can we just buy off God with enough sacrifices if we have enough religious behavior? Can we sway God? Can we bribe him? That's the question. Here's the answer in verse 8. He has told you, O man or mortal one, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice? To love kindness? And to walk humbly with your God? So it's not just about being a good person or fitting in with some religious externals. It's more than that. It's walking in humility with God, staying on that path of life. Moses says the same thing. Deuteronomy 10, 12. 
Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to hold him with respect and awe, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So this points us in the direction of what we all need. We all need to examine ourselves periodically and to see what am I being tempted by and enticed by and drawn away from and how do I deal with the desire in my heart? How do I deal with it? It's not through denial, but there is a way. In Proverbs 4.23, puts it this way. <clears throat> Above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. In 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Yeshua the Messiah. So we guard our hearts. You know what that means? We recognize that every one of us is vulnerable to certain things. And we're vulnerable to different things. Some of you don't even like chocolate. Some of you don't like donuts. Each of us has our own vulnerabilities, but what can we do? Because we are secure in our relationship with God and we know his love, you know what we can do? We can honestly come to him with the desires that we need help with. And we can authentically bring those desires to him and to say, Lord, I have this desire, but I don't want that desire to be at work in me. I want another desire to be at work. And we can present it to him and we can let the light of Messiah shine on the dark places in our own hearts. And we can say to him, Lord, I want a clean heart like King David did. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. And renew a right spirit in me. We can with confidence approach the Lord this way. Not hiding from him our, our brokenness, but bringing to him that brokenness, knowing this, he loves us and he hears our prayers and he answers us. When we genuinely love him and turn to him, with confidence we can come to him even with our sin, confessing it and turning away from it. I want to bless the Lord with a traditional Hebrew prayer that focuses on the goodness of the Lord. I'll call it out in Hebrew so you can repeat it. It's safe, even if you don't understand it. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to the English. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, hatov v'hametiv. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, the good one, the doer of good. Amen. When we realize that's who God is, he is good, he does good, we can approach him always.
then our lives can grow. And we can be, like Yaakov said, those who endured the temptation and were approved. Lord, we pray, help us endure by holding on to you, the one who is good and keeping your goodness in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you, Lord, that your shalom is freely available to us in the name of Yeshua. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.